listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by the ancient tradition of Stoic philosophy from Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. This is episode 110, Sam Savarajan, author of Uphill, How to Apply Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science to Life's Choices and Challenges. Sam is an author, seasoned financial executive, and behavioral scientist with over 25 years of international experience in the finance sector. He successfully led teams and built businesses at some of the largest firms in wealth management and investment banking. Sam has had his work appear in several academic and mainstream publications. In his second book, Uphill, How to Apply Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science to Life Choices and Challenges, he marries ancient Stoic wisdom with modern behavioral science and shares frameworks and tools to help people deal with setbacks and make better personal choices in investing, in building and growing businesses, leading teams, and in their personal lives. All right. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. You went on a mountain climbing adventure that turned out to be something like a philosophical retreat or a learning experience in Stoicism. Uh, I I did climb Kilimanjaro and I've climbed a number of mountains uh, and learned many of the lessons uh, that I talk about in the book. Really, I'm using the climbing the metaphor as uh, the mountain as a metaphor that I use to describe our journey in life the choices that we are faced with, the challenges we're faced with, and the decisions that we make. In writing the book, I drew on these experiences in the mountains, my experiences in life, but also those of friends and family. And it's only later that I connected the climbs to my readings in Stoicism, as well as my training in behavioral science. Ah, So maybe some gradual learning with Stoicism as the mountain climb was gradual as well. Well, exactly. And as a mountain climb, there is uh, uh, peaks and valleys. It goes up and down. And I think that uh, my learning continues uh, to develop in stoicism or in behavioral science or in life (laughs) in general. And uh, I think it's uh, one of the things that uh, the stoics say, which really resonates with me, is the whole concept of progress, not perfection. Right. To look to self-improve, to be humble with ourselves, not to get frustrated if we don't make overnight changes or fail to meet some goal in a short amount of time. Exactly. And what was so appealing about Stoicism that you wrote a book on this topic rather than maybe a book on investing or a different topic that you've explored before? No, that's a great question. I was introduced to Stoicism through a couple of friends and I started reading um, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, Seneca, Epictetus, and it really spoke to me, and it, it spoke to me at the stage of life that I'm at, uh, where, you know, and especially over the, the last five, ten years, and we've had the pandemic, we've had the, the Great Recession, and it was a period that I was reflecting on life, uh, purpose, uh, society, and all of those things, And to be honest, what fascinated me, Justin, in in Stoicism, the more that I read about it, is that uh, many of the things that Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Epictetus talked about uh, from ancient Rome is applies to our lives today. And uh, I, I think that is one of the things that really grabbed me and the idea that it's a very practical and, uh, I think, accessible 
way of looking at life and that you can apply to have a better understanding and approach to life, I think really resonates, resonated with me and continues to resonate with me. Yes, that touches on a topic that or a passage that you wrote in your book, you wrote, despite our hubris that we are so advanced, people 2000 years ago had the same problems, the same fears, the same questions that we have now. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Um, we are richer today and have longer and better quality lives than anyone 2000 years ago, including kings and emperors. But we have the same hopes and fears that Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Epictetus wrote about 2000 years ago. And to me, that's because the way our biology works, the way our brains are wired, it hasn't changed, not only in 2000 years, in thousands of years. But to me, that there's also a bright side to that. It means that we can learn from the past. We can take what worked for the Stoics that they write about, their discipline, their philosophy, their practices, and see how we can apply it to our, our lives today. And that's sort of what I tried to do in the book. Yes, especially in Stoicism, we have questions of how to handle adversity, how to overcome challenges, how to deal with loss. A lot of these are discussed in your book and in Stoicism in general. 100%. Yes, and finding fulfillment in life is something within Stoicism. Exactly, exactly. Yes, and many different paths to fulfillment. It's not like, oh, there's only one way to be. You must follow this particular edict or, oh, well, your dad was a dentist, so you should be too. Stoicism is ecumenical in many ways, many different ways to find fulfillment. Well, I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, it we, You've read philosophy. I, I know about philosophy, different uh, schools of philosophy, and I, I'm aware broadly of the core teachings of many of the world religions. But what particularly interests me about Stoicism is, as you say, it's not religious, it's not preachy. It recognizes that we're all human and, and we all have different paths in life and that uh, those paths have hopes uh, and fears uh, associated with it, that we have our faults. And if you read Meditations or Seneca's letters, it's proof that they weren't perfect. They were a work in progress. Um, and as I've said already, that I love their motto of progress, not perfection. To me, this is completely practical, and I think it serves as a model for all of us to strive to be better, but yet not beat ourselves up for falling short, because we will fall short. And I think that practical approach to understanding the world, uh, today's complex world, acting in that complex world and accepting what is not in our control calmly and serenely is is not only practical, but I think it's sorely needed in today's world. Yes, within Marcus Aurelius, there's a lot of talk of acceptance and that meditate when you wake up in the morning that you'll deal with people you might view as difficult. There are going to be all sorts of people who've fallen short of wisdom or perhaps they're very angry, they're going to get in your way, they're going to conflict with you in many different ways. So we can anticipate these hardships accept it and hopefully adjust on our ends to better get through the day and not be so agitated by others. And I think that's a good advice. Uh, and it's one that is paralleled by modern behavioral science, which talks about the concept of framing, um, you know, how we look at a situation very much colors 
how we uh, interpret it, how we react to it, and the outcomes that we can face from it. Uh, Epictetus talks about that, uh, you know, it's not our, uh, he talks about we're all given a role to play, and it's, it's not necessarily up to us to question the role that we are given, but to play it to the best of our uh, our ability. Um, and he talks about if you're a cripple, you know, that uh, you, and he was crippled, uh, by his uh, his master, etc. But he practiced his philosophy, saying that this is the the hand that I've been dealt with. It's not much use to com- to complain about the hand that I've got. It's how do I make the best of it? Oh yes, one of my favorite Epictetus passages talks about people playing a game of dice, and we we don't have control over what will come up on the dice, but we can handle what happens and adjust accordingly. And I, th- I think that this is, to me, uh, it, it was a relevant mindset and philosophy 2,000 years ago. And I think it's an even more necessary mindset and philosophy today. I think for, for all of our technology and all of our knowledge and all of the, our science, and I'm not by no means uh, complaining about any of that. I totally believe in all of that progress that we've made. But I think it leads many to have this false sense of control, uh, a false sense of greater control over life and events around us than perhaps is the case. And I think in that situation, the, the Stoic teachings can really help us to understand and accept the fact that not everything in this world is in our control and how to deal with it and how to thrive in, in that circumstance. Yes, to try to maintain control where we can, like social media, for instance. Well, we could spend an entire day just scrolling through random social media stuff and looking at it, or we can choose to use it for different ends. So it's going to be how we use the technology rather than saying the thing is good or bad in itself, as the Stoics often talk about things like money, for instance. Money isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing in itself, but it's how we use it. Exactly. It's how we use it. And, you know, whether the, 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 the device, whether it's money or social media, whether we, we control our use of it or it controls us. I think that's a, a very big view from my understanding of stoicism that uh, I, I think that, that applies to modern life. These are all wonderful tools that we have as, as long as we're using the tools and the tools are not using us. Yes, especially with money. I think that people can go wrong in many areas with lifestyle creep and that they maybe make more money with a certain job and then they start spending more and they're still unhappy. And some of these people are even living paycheck to paycheck, squandering their money, squandering their wealth, whereas people living a more modest life can still be happy and have more behind rather than having to deal with the paycheck to paycheck lifestyle. Well, this is where the the parallels between stoicism and behavioral science, to me, is fascinating. Uh, ex- what you just talked about, Justin, is uh, mirrored in behavioral science in this concept of the hedonic treadmill. So uh, the idea being that when we're chasing external motivation or external goods, uh, such as money, such as status, such as title, it's never enough. The, the moment that you've achieved that next job or that next promotion, um, you are already looking for the one after that. If you have uh, bought your ha- dream, the, the house of your dreams, 
uh, pretty soon you're going to want something else. And the behavioral science will say that we're far better looking at intrinsic motivations, the type of person you want to be, the, the type of values that you have, uh, you know, the type of interest, purpose that you, that's internally driven. And I think that is exactly what the Stoics have talked about, uh, the idea that we should be driven by a, a, a sense of purpose, not necessarily that we don't enjoy the finer things in life. Marcus Aurelius or uh, Seneca were not advocating that we should be uh, hermits. Uh, Seneca was a fabulously wealthy man, but uh, Seneca uh, famously said, my riches belong to me. He said this to a friend, my riches belong to me, you belong to your riches. The point being that he's enjoying his riches while he has it, but it, if he were to lose it, it wasn't going to destroy his life. Yes, we can have some of what the Stoics would call preferred indifference that, okay, well, we don't need that fancy meal to have a good life, but if we have it maybe once in a while or achieve it at very low cost, then that can be okay, but not to overindulge. And then people will set that as sort of a norm or they're going out and spending all this money. They really can't afford it. Or in some ways it's okay. Well, Hey, you can go out and spend maybe 15 or $20 rather than spending 150. Like what extra utility is that hundred plus dollars really doing for you? So I think it's asking what must be traded for what as that common question comes up within the Stoic text. And I think to your point, I think it's even more applicable today in the world of social media. Um, I think the the idea that uh, uh, we are uh, keeping up with the Joneses or the Kardashians because what we're seeing on, on TV or online, there is a sense of uh, it, there's a curated reality that we're seeing on, on, on social media, the highlight reel, if you will, of people's lives. And I, I think that the tendency to compare ourselves and want to live or keep up with that, I think is, uh, is, is, is causing a lot of the, the turmoil in people's lives today. And falling back on that stoic teachings and those principles, I think can help people manage this complexity and this, uh, the, the, the challenges I think that uh, modern living uh, presents. Yes, and the want for fame, for instance, can turn out to be a bad thing as some of these people who are maybe engaging in some public displays could get negative attention and that might not turn out too well for them. Maybe think of the reality stars, for instance, that, okay, well, they're on television, they're cursing at other people, they're throwing things, they're very angry. Like, okay, well, they get the attention on that show, but is that a good way to go about life. Is that how we should be? Uh, I think not. The Stoics would agree with you, right? Marcus Aurelius wrote in Meditations that uh, the idea of worrying about your legacy or even momentary fame is um, is sort of pointless. He says that, uh, you know, even the, the, the heroes of his time, whether it was Alexander the Great, I think there's the, there's the quote that Alexander the Great and his uh, chariot driver, you know, both ended up in the, buried in the same ground. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I think that the pursuit of fame at the expense, the pursuit of fame is fleeting to Marcus Aurelius's point. 
but the pursuit of fame for at, at the expense of your values or uh, in, in a way that goes against the broader purpose of your life, as you suggest, would be something that the, the Stoics would certainly frown on and uh, would raise a, an eyebrow at to say, is this really the, the life that you want to live? Right. So yes, questioning our role models and picking them very carefully. Are, are you going to aspire to be someone from the Jersey Shore reality show, for instance, or maybe pick a different kind of role model that's contributing to a better society or maybe has better personal disposition or maybe some positive virtue that we can reflect on? I think that that's a great point, and it's something I write about in the book about uh, part of the the direction that society is going, and it, it references a little bit of what Marcus Reyes says, uh, or the Stoics say that to, to pick the right role model. So they talk about Cato, who famously opposed um, uh, Julius Caesar when he uh, declared himself the dictator of the Roman Empire. And uh, Cato uh, refused to submit and in those days uh, did what was considered to be heroic. He took his own life uh, on principle. And what I write about in my book is that we all need role models. And, you know, there was a time when the role models might have been um, a a religious leader or a a significant leader in society. Uh, I wonder whether uh, the, the role models that we're choosing or many are choosing today or the reality star, uh, reality TV stars and celebrities um, and what exactly that we are role modeling, um, what we're using them as role models for. Yes, we ought to be careful of who we surround ourselves with as well. As the Stoics mentioned that if we're around people who give off a bad disposition, they're treating others poorly, perhaps we get molded into what they are like if we're not careful. So to be careful with who we choose, it's not an elitist attitude to some talk about the Stoics, but to be careful of who we spend our time with. We only have so many hours in the day, so should we choose better people rather than, oh, well, I grew up with so-and-so or I went to college with so-and-so, maybe just being more careful and maybe later in life as an adult, we can be more picky of who we spend our time with as well, rather than just the same old people. Well, and I think there's a lot of modern you know, sayings that support that. I mean, there is one that I uh, recall that uh, we are the product of the five people that we that we hang out with, right? And I think that's very much along the lines of what you say. I mean, we, we the Stoics talked about the freedom of choice that we all have to kind of decide uh, who we want to be and how we want to live our lives. And your point, Justin, is exactly that, that by choosing who we are, surround ourselves with the the type of influences we uh, expose ourselves to, I think is going to determine the type of choices that uh, we get to make and the, the type of life that we get to have. Yes, in your book, you write, it's possible that our desires and goals are primarily molded by others. Maybe it's not our own preferences or values. To me, that was an interesting point. This is the idea of mimetic desire that I write about in in the book. And the concept of mimesis was put forward by the philosopher René Girard. And in the book, I talk about the fact that we have subtle influences on our desires and goals from the moment we are born. So our parents, their friends, what we watch, what we do, very much influences what we value and what we strive for. 
So we think these are our own goals and our own desires, but in fact, they've been uh, influenced and uh, shaped and molded by these external influences. A book um, by Luke Burgess, Wanting uh, is the title, describes this in much greater, greater detail. So Rene Girard said that such mimetic striving can actually create intense rivalry. The, the, the bizarre thing is that the more similar that we become as people, the more different we try to be. So a great modern example is the space race amongst billionaires. So Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Elon Musk are the latest very wealthy people that are all trying to be different. But the funny thing is they're all trying to be different in the same way. This is mimetic desire at work and an illustration that even though we think they're internal desires, how influenced they are by others and society around us. Yes, and it could be a good thing to be mindful of our upbringing. Maybe, okay, well, our parents had these particular political or religious beliefs rather than just going whatever they had. Maybe we should look into those things and, well, what do some other people believe? Maybe, oh, well, I grew up in a Catholic household, but hey, what about the people in this part of the country or this different country? What do they believe and what are the reasons for those beliefs? So it's having an open-minded stance and thinking about the ideas rather than just holding them because they were popular or the people around us had helped them. Well, and this goes to the very first of the Stoic, of the three Stoic disciplines, the, what the, uh, Marcus Ruiz calls ascent or having an objective understanding of reality. And I think to your point, uh, if our reality is shaped by one perspective, our parents or our upbringing or whatever that influences our beliefs, Stoicism would advocate that we should be complementing, supplementing those perspectives with other views that uh, can together shape a, a more objective understanding of the world. Yeah, getting to learn the other perspectives, getting to learn about the other people, trying to understand their positions rather than, unfortunately, in today's polarized society, casting, quote unquote, the other side as evil people. They want to destroy America, whatever other charged language that that one might hear. And I think this, again, goes back to um, another stoic I think concept that I think really resonated with me that, uh, you know, that we're all part of society and that uh, we all have a collective vested interest in society. And I think one of the things that Marcus Aurelius talks about is that um, a tree, and he uses the metaphor of a tree, a tree can you, uh, uh, lose a leaf or a limb and continue to survive. But the leaf or a limb cannot survive without the tree. And the point that he's making is that we are all um, part uh, of society and what is good for society in general is good for the individuals and that we all have this and this is something I write about in the book that uh, you talk about polarization that uh, we, we live in a world right now where everybody is starkly aware of their rights but rights don't exist in a vacuum the rights are part of a social contract that we've all um, implicitly signed that says that we restrict our we restrict some of our rights 
um, because we believe that we're better off for it. So for example, uh, in theory, um, before we had society and laws, there is nothing stopping us from robbing our fellow men. But we've implicitly entered into a contract to restrict our rights, if you will, to rob the fellow man, because that limitation of our rights, that restriction of our freedom actually makes us better off. We sleep better at night. Um, we enjoy our lives more because we're not looking over our shoulders, waiting for somebody to come and rob us. Um, and if somebody does, in society, we have laws that protect us that say, okay, that, that person will be caught and punished. So the, the point about your point about polarization, etc., that uh, it's a zero sum game, heads I win, tails you lose, is something that is uh, contrary to what the Stoics believe and uh, is something that I, I think is, is an interesting way to look at um, and, and frame are the, the, the discussions that we're having in, in contemporary society. Yes, and the Stoics talked about responsibility in how should you treat other people? How should you behave in the world? Should you just be that robber going around taking from people? Like you have the ability to do that, but should you do that? Is that the right thing to do? Is there a sense of justice in that? Is that's also a main theme within Stoicism? And I like those themes, as you say, justice, um, courage, the virtues that we talk about. And what, what I like about it is that it, those are uh, virtues that are talked about outside of a religious context. To me, I don't see it as a moral. This isn't a moral dialogue that's happening. It's just uh, these are the if you call it the, the, the tools, the toolkit that we would use to live a better uh, and happier life. The, the idea behind, that the Stoics put forward is that these virtues, the four cardinal virtues, um, work together so that uh, it, it becomes a guidebook for how we can live uh, a a, a eudaimonic life, as the Stoics call it, a flourishing life. And I think there's there's something in that. Yes, and moderation being another one. So maybe, okay, let's not work 70, 80 hours a week and neglect other areas of life. As you wrote in your book, there are trade-offs for spending our time. It's difficult to maximize effort in domains like health, family, work, and community. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that uh, whether it was in Marcus Aurelius's time or today, everyone has 168 hours a week, no more, no less. There was research by uh, a social scientist, Anders Ericsson, uh, which was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Outliers, which suggests that you need 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Putting that and basic math together shows that the time that we spend in any one domain at work, uh, with the family, uh, with friends, is time that is not spent in another domain. This was the conclusion from a study by Harvard Business School professors who found that the school's most successful graduates also had to make trade-offs in their lives. So it wasn't the case that the graduates who were world famous CEOs also had um, perfect family lives or perfect health, et cetera. They had to make trade-offs. And so 
But of course, at different times in each of our lives, the priorities will change and so will the trade-offs we choose to make. But I think the, the key thing for us, um, and I think we live in a society where we try to maximize um, across all domains, but the reality is given the constraints that we only have so much time, that we only have so much resources, that we only have so much energy, maximization means in one area means minimization in others. So we have to be ready instead to optimize across all these domains. What's the minimum? Uh, what's the minimum that you want in work that is going to allow you to be present at with your family, to be present in the community, to be present, um, in, you know, in your in your healthy lifestyle, etc. And, and the reality of it is those trade-offs are going to be different for each person. And that's not a good or bad. It's just that we need to recognize, uh, each of us needs to recognize that we have to make that trade-off, either implicitly or explicitly. Yes, and hopefully thinking about what's important to us before we get into that situation, or it's too late in some respects, as many thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll get this brand new car, and oh, well, the monthly payments are $800, $900 a month, and I'll have to work all these hours, and now I don't have this money, and then there's stress, there's financial difficulty, so... Yes, thinking about those big life decisions before getting into them. Or sometimes people will later in life regret, oh, I, I missed my opportunity to have children, but maybe it's too late for that, unfortunately. If that's something they really wanted, hopefully they could have considered that earlier, or people who are younger in the audience can think about those before it's later in life. And towards the end of the life, people might have these regrets, oh, I missed out on the opportunity to do this and that, hopefully that won't be the case. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, one of the early chapters in my book is about climbing the right ladder. And uh, this was a phrase that really struck with me. And it was uh, put forward by the Catholic monk, Thomas Merton, who says that we spend our life um, climbing uh, the ladder rung by rung. And it's only later uh, when we near, and for some of us, when we reach near the top of that ladder that we start to realize that it might've been leaning against the wrong wall. And I think this is your point, Justin, about uh, picking the values uh, that uh, that are going to frame, um, that are going to be the wall on which we're going to lean our ladder against. And I think it's, uh, if you think about philosophy, and in particular Stoic philosophy, I think what it's teaching you or what it's helping you provide is a framework um, in which you can evaluate the choices and decisions that you make. Um, it doesn't mean that that framework won't change, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to make the wrong choice at times, but it, it, it makes things easier. Uh, it frees up mental energy, and it avoids temptation if you uh, have a framework in which you can make those decisions. So I'll give you an example. I write about it in the book. But uh, Clayton Christensen, um, who is an author who sadly passed away, but is an author who wrote the book, How Will You Measure Your Life, says in the book a story of when he was a student. He uh, was uh, a key player on the school basketball team, and they had made it through the playoffs, and uh, he they had a championship game on a Sunday. Now, Christensen was very religious and had long before decided that he would not work or play on Sunday. 
his Sabbath. Now, it turned out that uh, the championship game was to be played on the Sunday, and his coach and his teammates were begging him to play. Uh, but for for Christensen, um, I mean, while it wasn't an easy decision to make in the sense that he didn't want to let his team down, it was an easy decision to make because he had already had the framework for his life. Sundays were not meant for work or play. So when that decision came and when the temptation to say, OK, I'm going to make an exception this time came, it was far easier for him to deal with that situation than for somebody who didn't have that framework already in place. Yes. So many different ways to make a decision to deliberate about it, not to just make it in a few minutes, not even necessarily the same day as, oh, well, maybe you're tired and you're browsing through Amazon and you decide to just purchase something for $400 that you normally wouldn't, right? So taking a little bit of longer time, being more intentional about things, not being emotional about things to the point of, oh, well, I'm upset, so I'm just going to eat all this food and drink all this alcohol and regret it the next day. The stoicism is is telling us to be more intentional. And it's something in your book, you wrote that emotions are fundamental and necessary human trait, but misfortune comes from letting emotions drive our decisions. Yeah, I think that uh, the there is uh, behavioral science, for example, that would show research shows that people with damage to their brain's emotional centers are simply incapable of making decisions. So the the idea that emotions are bad um, or that we should wish away emotions is simply wrong. What the Stoics were saying, and I wholeheartedly agree, is that we need emotions and we should give it the proper respect. Emotions are another lens to evaluate the options and alternatives that we have. This is the gut uh, feeling, like, you know, if you if it shows whether something how much something matters to you, which way your experience and your uh, your past experience and your preferences are leading you. The key thing that the Stoics say is that the emotions cannot be the only tool that you're using to, to make a decision. You should be using your reason. Your emotions provide one perspective. Your reason and your experience and your training should provide other perspectives. And together, you can make a, a more fulsome decision um, in, 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 the, in the things that matter. Yes, and not be overly driven by negative emotions like anger, envy. Now, they, they could play some part, but not the majority of the picture. Like, oh, well, we see that our neighbor seems to be happy. and We might think, oh, well, how, how does he do that? Maybe I can be like my neighbor. That, that can be healthy to some extent. But if it's, oh, well, my neighbor got this brand new car and I need to buy that too. And I need to dress like him and I need to do everything. That's not going to be good. So it's more of the, the moderation within Stoicism. I think it's moderation. And I think to your point is, again, it comes back to the uh, the objective understanding of the world. Um, I think the neighbor buying a car is a great example. I've used that many times. I think it's, e and we're seeing this in, 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 in social media and everything else. We're seeing this in the levels of debt that we have um, in, in, in the US or uh, and other, uh, other Western countries. And I think that the, um, that that becomes a reaction that you're seeing somebody like your neighbor buying the car and making a decision that may not be fully informed or that may not be absent the emotional co component to it. 
your neighbor might buy a car because they don't have kids or uh, uh, other obligations that you might have. So it's those kind of contexts that need to be brought in, that rational thinking that the Stoics advocated that uh, it can, I think, in many ways protect ourselves from making uh, or relying on our, our, our first impressions and getting ourselves in trouble. Yes, a lot of these stressors, a lot of these desires, too much desire anyway, can be self-defeating. You write in your book that a lot of your life stress was from an attempt to control things that were outside of your control. So maybe some people will, oh, well, I was attracted to this one person earlier in life. I wanted this marriage. I wanted this romantic relationship, whatever. And the person isn't interested and they're so upset about that. They're continuing to pursue this person, even though it's not going in a positive direction. So perhaps that could be one thing of trying to control things outside of your control rather than moving on and perhaps finding meaning, finding another person, finding a new hobby, some, something else could be an answer rather than, as some have called it, one-itis. Yeah. Look, the reality is that m many things are out of our control. And I think that's a sad reality for all of us. Um, and we've talked about this earlier, but with modern technology and the way modern society uh, is structured, we are led to believe that we have more control than we actually do. And that's just not the case. I mean, I could give you any number of examples. I mean, look at COVID-19. I mean, can anyone say that we knew that was coming down the road or that, uh, that we had control over it? Look at the current economic situation. Look at people who are sadly losing their jobs. This is None of this is in their control. I think what, to me, why stoicism has particular resonance to me, but all, I think to us in today's world, is that stoicism isn't saying, um, it isn't giving you a fatalistic prescription on life that says it, everything will work out. It's not giving you a rosy, Pollyannish view of life to say, you know, just think positive and everything will be okay. It does say that things do your best. It says, understand the world objectively, act purposefully and courageously, in, uh, in, but accept the things that are not in your control. And what it means, what that means to me is that you don't worry or beat yourself up about what is not in your control. You simply, um, simply, I mean, that's, uh, I, I mean that relatively speaking, of course, but you know, the, the advice is that you should assess your current situation calmly, rationally, and then take the appropriate action after taking into consideration the, the likely consequences of those, of those actions. Yes, sometimes it can get tricky too if some things are partially in our control, somewhat outside of our control. It can be difficult to understand, although some modern Stoics have talked about the trichotomy of control for those partial things, like excelling at a sport, for instance. We can study, we can practice, we can perform, but ultimately whether we get chosen to participate in the team isn't completely up to us. I, and I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, another example in modern life would be interviewing or getting a job. And I think that there is a, a, there's a lot of negativity, I think, especially among um, 
some of the younger people who are looking for jobs and uh, you know feeling that they're not getting the um, the jobs that reflect their uh, their education, their experience, etc. And it's easy to be fatalistic in that world. But a stoic view would say uh, in, in that context that, look, you still prepare yourself. This is that trichotomy of control. Uh, you focus on the parts of this that are in your control. You prepare for the interviews as best as you can. Um, you go, w- walk into the interview with as positive an attitude as you can. You dress appropriately for the interview as well as you can. You conduct yourselves in the interview as well as you can. Those are the things that are in your control. How the interviewer reacts, how the company reacts, what their next step is, those are unfortunately outside your control. Uh, And you have to accept that. And I think that to me is, uh, I don't think that was different 2000 years ago. I don't think that is different today. And I'm willing to bet that it won't be different uh, 500 years from now. Yes, the applications of Stoicism are really interesting as so many people from different backgrounds are approaching the philosophy as I got into it through poker play. As I was listening to the Thinking Poker podcast and they mentioned, hey, Stoicism can be very helpful for your mental game. And in poker, there are so many situations where you made the best effort, you got all of your money in with the best hand, but you got unlucky in a way that the other person caught up, they made a better hand. So there's an element of what we might call misfortune in that. But hey, we we got our money in good. We made the best decision. And maybe that could be the case for the job interview as well. You were well prepared. You had great answers to the interviewer's question. But then it turned out that maybe a week later they said, oh, well, we're just not accepting more people for the position at this time. And maybe someone made a decision and said, oh, we're just not hiring anymore. (laughs) They they put out the job application, but uh, for whatever reason... They didn't do that. Some people might take it personal or, oh, I'm a failure, but that's not the right way to conceptualize it. We, we might not always get the closure and why we weren't selected in that example. But, yeah, to not take it so personally and just to make our best effort that we can. No, I think I think you're exactly right. And in behavioral science, I think there is the this concept of differentiating between luck and skill. Um, and there are things that are pure luck going to some casino games, for example. There are other things that uh, are, I would say, far closer to the skill level. Um, and I think this is, you know, playing um, football or playing poker, I think, is far more on the skill level. But um, as we've seen in in football or basketball games or in, in poker, as you mentioned, uh, poker hands, best player, the best team can still lose. And I think this has got n- nothing to do with the, the ability or the skills of the team or the player. And it's got everything to do with that uh, even in situations of skill or uh, endeavors of skill, which is quote unquote, you know, mostly in that person's control, there is still an element of things that are outside your control. The other person could have a, a better hand. Uh, the, other, the other team could simply be uh, having a, a game or a day that they're, they're better, um, even though that the team is uh, far further below uh, in the rankings. And I think the the idea that uh, uh, we can control everything that uh, uh, we're faced with, I think, is I, I think it leads to uh, a overconfidence 
uh, in approaching these situations of so this lack of uh, intellectual humility. But I think it also creates a lot of the turmoil and the angst, I think, that a lot of people have in today's society that uh, they believe that they should be able to control the outcome when, in fact, they can't. Yes, and some people can unfortunately take on an attitude of entitlement or think that for whatever reason, they're unlucky that the world is conspiring against them in some way, which is not true. It's, you wrote in your book, too many of us think that the world either owes us or that it is against us. That is simply a very wrong and very unhealthy view of the world. Yeah, again, as I said, I think the world is in many ways a random place. Uh, we forget that while we want that stock in our portfolio to go up, there are 20 other people that are waiting to sell it to lock in their profits. You know, their actions affect our outcomes. But there was no malice or bad intention on the part of these 20 people. They were just doing what was rational for them or what would have been rational for us if we were in the same situation. In behavioral science, this is the concept of fundamental attribution error. So for example, you know, we have all inadvertently cut off someone when we're driving. I know I do it. But when the other driver is honking at us, what do we tell ourselves? Oh, I didn't see that the lane was ending or I have an emergency to get to. So we weren't being unfair or doing it out of malice. But when somebody else cuts us off, we get upset thinking that that other driver is an idiot or deliberately doing it to provoke us. So that's just the way humans are wired. We want to think that what we do is affected by external circumstances. We couldn't help it. But what others do is motivated by their personalities. This leads to the, the point that you're making, that we think that the world is, you, you know, either owes us or that it's against us. And that's, the world is completely neutral. <laughs> it's neither your fan or your enemy. Yeah, I think even at the poker table, some people legitimately believe that the dealer is intentionally causing them to lose in some way. And as much as the dealers will say, I don't control the cards. I, I've shuffled the cards like people still think that. And some even keep a mental tally of, oh, every time this particular dealer is in the box, I lose. Like, I'm not, I'm not even focusing on those things as a player. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to play that in my hands the best I could, just making good decisions while others are wrapped up in all kinds of superstitions and bad ways thinking about things. And I think it's to their detriment, to your point, yes. Justin. I think that, uh, and I think that's what stoicism I, I think allows you to do it, it's it, it's not going to guarantee you outcomes, but it's going to maximize the likelihood that you you live your life in a way that uh, you know you are getting the outcomes that you're uh, you're pursuing, but perhaps most importantly that you can accept the fact that the, the just because you're pursuing an outcome or pursuing a goal doesn't mean you're going to get it. And I think stoicism teaches you that in spades, that you should be, um, you know, you're ready and willing to accept the, the way the, the chips fall. Sorry, a couple of poker references. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you wrote in your book, go ahead and enjoy what life offers you, but don't expect it and don't become attached to it. It really resonated with me. And I think it's, uh, it's something that I, I I believe can help uh, a, a lot of us. I think it's, again, the concept of accepting what is outside our control. Getting laid off or facing a reception uh, is largely out of our control. It doesn't mean that we should live in fear. We should enjoy our lives. 
you know, but good financial planning means that, you know, you should save some money as an emergency fund because the world doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. It was Benjamin Franklin that said that nothing is certain but death and taxes. Um, the Stoics would say that everything we have, we will lose at some point. Now, some may see this as morbid. Uh, the Stoics saw this as life affirming. I happen to agree. I think, you know, the, the, it, 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 this viewpoint motivated the Stoics to live in the present, to enjoy the moment, to not take any of it for granted. And I think that's good advice for all of us. Yes. And then when the inevitable, what we might call adversity or misfortune happens, we'll be better prepared for it rather than taken off guard and not know how to react. Exactly that. I think, you know, if you're prepared that uh, everything is temporary, everything is going to, including our lives, these things do pass as they have for hundreds and thousands of years. It's liberating because it actually kind of stops us um, from wallowing in fear and allows us to, to view the world objectively and enjoy the world objectively. All right. Very good. Some closing thoughts here. I wonder, I've been reading some threads on Reddit recently under Stoicism about applying Stoicism for teenagers or maybe even children, as most Stoic products are books written by adults for adults. But what would you say that could be applied for teenagers or children? Part of the motivation that I wrote the book and I wrote it the way I did as a story um, is actually, it's not teenagers. I have a 20 year old daughter. Um, so she's slightly out of the teenage years, <laughs> but it's, uh, it is for that generation of people. I think, I think the lessons of the values that we talked about, the framework that we choose for life so that, you know, you're not regretting it down the road. I think these are all important lessons, um, viewing the world of what's in your control and what's not, acting with a sense of fairness and justice. I think these are all important lessons for every one of us, uh, whatever our age or stage in life. I think the challenge, and I'm the first to admit, I didn't read Stoicism when I was 10, 12, 15, or 20. I mean, I let, I, I let it, uh, sorry, I started reading it later in life. Part of it is it's philo philosophy. It's not easy to access or digest. And I think that, but the, the lessons are important. So one of the motivations for writing the book as a story uh, was hopefully that it's accessible to younger people that uh, take in the lessons of stoicism but uh, and do it in a in a more digestible more should be done in providing uh, the 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 key lessons and takeaways from Marcus Aurelius or Seneca you know targeted towards younger audiences so that they can actually incorporate it uh, earlier in their lives and their decision making uh, I think it could I, I think it can only do good Yes, maybe acceptance, as we talked about, can be important because maybe children, teenagers might not really like being in school. Maybe they don't get along with their teacher. They don't find some of the topics interesting, but maybe it's okay. Well, this is just this phase of life and this is what I have to do, but maybe I can make the most of it. Maybe I can find something interesting in school. Maybe I can find good friends, look at the positives instead of being overly focused on the negatives could be one thing. 
And and I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, I'm not sure too many people that enjoyed school at, uh, all the time when they're going through um, in this age or any age. But I think your your point is right. I think and again, this comes back to the lessons from stoicism, having um, you know good role models or mentors, uh, and I think that applies uh, not just from a career perspective, but even as young young people um, in going through school or growing up, like who who are their models and uh, uh, mentors that they can pattern themselves after when they're going through that period? Oh, I don't like school, etc. Or they do they have a people that they can look up to that they look up to that they can showcase that look. You know, learning about algebra today. Um, you know, you may never solve algebraic equations. You know, twenty years from now, but it, it teaches you certain things that uh, the ways of thinking. It teaches you certain discipline and uh, rigor that is going to help you in no matter what you do. I think those are good um, lessons and teachings to provide. Uh, Very good. Yes, having an attitude of gratitude. I think an important thing is many can be down on themselves because, oh, my life isn't a certain way. I don't have access to everything that the other kids in school might or, oh, well, look at so-and-so. He um, has these wealthy parents and mine aren't. And some people can get in a sad state or with social media, the comparison uh, between other people. It, it can get dicey. I think the attitude to gratitude, it's a great way of putting it, Justin. And I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, we all no matter what our circumstances have a lot to be grateful for and it's easy for each of us to look at what we don't have instead of uh, be grateful for the things that we do have all right very good so wrapping up how can people find you online they can find me online on my website www.sansivarajan.com um, there is a bit about me um, writings that i do on um, online but also uh, links to my books on amazon and uh, other venues all right and if you could spell your name slash website for the listeners it's www.sansivarajan s-i-v A-R-A-J-A-N.com. All right, very good. And your newest book? It's called Uphill, How to Apply Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science to Life's Choices and Challenges. All right, very good. And any social media that they might be able to connect with you on? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And all of those links they can find on um, on my website. And I'd love to hear from your listeners and uh, um, talk about all things Stoicism. All right. Any upcoming projects, upcoming books? Uh, I have a, a book idea, but uh, it's... Uh, early stages yet so the idea stage and uh, not much further than that but again uh, more on the story of uh, along the lines of Seneca's shortness of time that we are all given uh, life isn't short but how we make uh, how we make use of it all right very good thank you for the conversation today a very quick hour or so I appreciate it Justin it was a it was a fun uh, conversation thank you for having me thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content See the show notes for more information and links surrounding topics discussed in today's episode. Support my efforts through Patreon, found at StoicSolutionsPodcast.com. Access special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, 
and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com. That's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y travel.com to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at low cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Find me in the 2022 book, Stoicism Today, Selected Writings, Volume 4. Order a paperback or Kindle version of the book from Amazon.com. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.